0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Freddie was just a baby when he was placed into a foster home and then spent the next few years of his young life moving from one foster family to another. He was then sent to a state-run institution which housed so-called mentally retarded or feeble-minded children but as freddie got older he started to realize that there was nothing wrong with him or many of his other friends this is apple for the teacher a true crime podcast i'm your host anna thomas today's episode is called feeble-minded freddie was sent to live in a state-run institution why Freddie was born in 1941 in Massachusetts in the US. His mother had been 21 when she gave birth to Freddie and she also had a two-year-old son. Freddie's father had died by suicide before he was born, so he never knew him. His mother had an alcohol problem and many men came and went from the house. It had been noted by neighbours that the children were unkempt and also often left alone in the house. The neighbours eventually went to the police and social workers from the Department of Public Welfare came and removed the two boys from the house. They were separated and placed into foster homes. Freddie would never see his brother again. Freddie was placed with a family near the town of Boston. He was only seven months old. Freddie's new family also had other children like him who were wards of the state. But his foster mother also had her own children. She ran the house with strict discipline. If a child wet themselves, she would have them stand in a flushing toilet. This was her way of potty training the children. Her biological children were treated better than Freddie and the other foster children, who often had less food and affection. So Freddie grew into a thin boy who was very shy and afraid to talk to adults. Not long after he turned three years old, he was sent to live with another family. About two months later, a social worker came and collected him again, although this time he resisted, but it was no use. This pattern repeated itself many more times, with Freddie being moved from one home to another. He became understandably anxious every time the social workers visited. It was at one of the homes that Freddie's new foster mother noticed that he had a speech problem. He would speak in a strange way and it was often hard to understand what he was saying. She also noted how thin he was. So due to his strange way of speaking and his weight, she took Freddie to see a doctor who determined that he was reluctant to engage in extended conversations. But otherwise, the doctor found Freddie to be a normal boy. After living there for a while, his foster mother noted that Freddie was a bright and well-behaved boy who helped with household chores and looked after the other children. So he settled in well with the family. However, the social workers who made regular checks on Freddie were still concerned about his speech and took him to be evaluated at an institution for the retarded. He was given an intelligence test but he found the whole process daunting. He had never been to school or read books and didn't even know how to use pencils and crayons. It was noted that he was very anxious during the many tasks he was asked to do. Following the completion of the tests, Freddie was found to be what was termed at the time as being feeble-minded of the familial type. His IQ was found to be a low 65, and his mental age was said to be two years behind his chronological age. So it was recommended that he be sent to a state-run residential school for retarded children. But since the school was full, they moved him again to another home, which was his seventh home in six years. However, this new home came to be the best of any he had lived in previously. It was situated on a farm, and his foster mother fed him and the other boys well, as the property had numerous fruit trees, which they were allowed to eat as much of as they liked. They were able to celebrate their birthdays, and she kept them clean and healthy, and for the first time, Freddy went to school. But then, one day, the children noticed that their foster mother was not well, and they were devastated when she passed away. The children were then all separated and went to live in new homes. Freddie became very sad and alone, missing the only true home he had ever had. After only being in his new home for a short time, his case was reassessed and it was recommended that he be sent to a state institution as it had been deemed that he suffered from a mild level of retardation. He was then sent to the Walter E. Vernald School for the Feeble-Minded. The school was one of more than a hundred other institutions across America which took so-called feeble-minded or mentally defective children away from society. The aim was to weed out these children in order to produce a better human race. They were considered to be unsuitable for reproduction. This movement was called eugenics and became renowned across the world and even led to the ideology behind the Nazi Holocaust. The school that Freddie found himself sent to had opened in 1848, some 100 years before he arrived. It was founded by a man named Samuel Gridley Howe, who was a doctor and educator. He believed any child was able to be educated and become a productive citizen, and it wasn't long before his school became a great success. The school allowed children to attain academic and job skills, which then allowed them to function in society. However, as the years progressed, attitudes began to change, partly due to Charles Darwin's theories of natural selection. Many began to take the view that certain traits were biologically rooted, such as intelligence and morality. It was argued that that children at the school should never leave the institution to prevent them from having their own mentally deficient children who would then become a burden on society and thus ruin future generations it was then that eugenics or the selective breeding of humans came into effect it was declared that the middle and upper classes were superior and immigrants from Eastern Europe and Asia were put into the same class as the poor, illiterate and immoral. The eugenics movement had two strategies. First, to encourage white, middle and upper class women to have large families. President Theodore Roosevelt stated that, quote, America needs a race of good breeders as well as good fighters. The second strategy was to prevent lower classes from having offspring. This was supported by doctors who encouraged mothers to deny medical care to newborns with birth defects. Euthanasia was portrayed as a loving act. As already seen, Samuel Gridley House School had a philosophy totally opposed to eugenics. But when he died, the school was taken over by a man named Walter E. Fernald, who didn't agree that the feeble-minded could become self-sufficient and productive citizens but he also expressed concern about the so-called brighter feeble-minded who may escape notice and therefore produce further feeble-minded offspring. Tests were then developed that categorized children as either idiots or imbeciles. Idiots were children who attained a mental age two years younger than their chronological age. And imbeciles were three to seven years younger in mental age. Those who were considered the brighter feeble minded were termed to be morons and were therefore above the imbeciles and idiots. But it was feared the morons would fly under the radar and breed. Here is a quote about morons We need to hunt them out in every possible place and take care of them and see to it that they do not propagate and make the problem worse, and that those who are able today do not entail loss of life and property and moral contagion in the community by the things they do because they are weak-minded. What resulted were travelling clinics that tested children in schools. However, often normal children were deemed to be morons, and their parents were pressured to have them institutionalised and if they refused, they were taken to court, where they ultimately lost custody of their children. Here is one account from a boy whose father took him to the school and just left him there, with the boy having no idea that he would never see his family again. I was nine at the time, in August 1951. So on this day, the father piled them in the car and stopped at a candy store and got them a couple of tins of peanut brittle, brought them to Fernald. My father went in, and, and I could see kids coming out in the hallway and looking. I remember my father coming out, and he was heading out the front door, and I kind of stopped. I goes, I goes, oh, Dad, I says, where are you going? He goes, oh, he says, uh, I'll be right back. And of course, so sadly, this father never came back. But this scenario happened to many other children as well. So, the Walter E. Fernald School began accepting more and more of these so-called morons, and the school population grew steadily, and many more such schools were opened, all with the following purpose, quote, When similar colonies exist in every state of the Union and the defectives by the thousands, both men and women, are gathered into them we shall be beginning to satisfy the greatest of all present social needs the complete care and control of the defective another method used to control the so-called defective was to sterilize women and so by the time Freddie arrived at fernald such schools were continuing to be built But it was estimated that 8% of the children in these schools were either almost normal or not at all retarded. Nationwide, this amounted to 12,000 normal children being institutionalised, and most of the children never left the schools, as they were needed as unpaid labour. Such as gardeners, cooks, caretakers, etc. And in fact, they sought to enroll more of the higher functioning morons simply for their free labor. What is the bearing of the laws of heredity upon human affairs? Eugenics provides the answer. Eugenics was proposed as the scientific solution for social problems. It was a combination of hope and aspiration on one side, and on the other side, it was about fear, in some cases about hate. They are identified early, categorized, feeble-minded, imbecile, idiot. It would have been better by far if they had never been born. People tend to think that eugenics was a doctrine that originated with the Nazis that it was grounded in wild claims that were far outside the scientific mainstream. Both of those impressions are fundamentally not true. It was almost a mania that sort of swept through the country and there was that kind of naive, optimistic vision of eugenics, like, hey, let's all get together and make better people. The eugenics movement was about having healthy children About having a stronger society. There's nothing wrong with that. You have to look at the underbelly of what was implemented in the name of eugenics to see what was so problematic about it. But by the 1930s, eugenics began to be questioned more and more, and scientists began studying the role of environment in the development of children. It was found that children with low IQs could begin to thrive when placed in loving and nurturing environments, and their IQs would rise as a result. But while the tide was turning against eugenics in America, it was embraced in Germany as a way to promote ethnic cleansing. In fact, a book written about eugenics was referred to by Hitler as his Bible. So, contrary to the common belief, eugenics originated in America, not in Nazi Germany. When Freddie was admitted to the school, his records show that his mother had also been a ward of the state and his father had spent time in a psychiatric hospital and was determined to be mentally deficient. He had taken his life through carbon monoxide poisoning. The last test that was conducted on Freddie showed that he was determined to be a moron, so he was therefore viewed as one of the brighter feeble-minded. He was also classed as a state boy. These were boys with no family ties. The others were called homeboys, whose families would come and visit and even take them away for weekends and vacations. No one told Freddie where he was and why he was there, he felt that it was like a prison and wondered what he had done to be there. At the school, the children lived in dormitories and the authorities made sure each dormitory housed a mixture of children with varying degrees of people-mindedness and other physical disabilities. Some had cerebral palsy, others suffered from muscular dystrophy, while others appeared normal such as Freddie. It was children like Freddie who were able to help with the care of the other less able children in their dormitory who they helped to wash, walk and feed. At bedtime, the boys were told to lie on their right sides so that they were all facing the same direction and so couldn't look at each other. There was also a hierarchy that developed in the boys' dormitory. Those on top were the tough boys who were called the big shots Freddie was in the next group who were able to defend themselves if needed to. The next group were the timid boys and the last group were the severely retarded. Freddie found himself naturally looking after the boys in this lowest group. But those who were really on top of the pecking order were the adult attendants who were in charge of the dormitories. While some treated the boys well, others were violent and abusive and to be avoided at all cost. At mealtimes, some would hit boys with metal spoons if they were too noisy. Others were sexually sadistic, making boys strip and then yanking their testicles. The attendants also had names for the boys and as Freddie was black, he was called a black assed nigger boy. For most of the time, the attendants had the boys sufficiently scared that they dare not get out of line. They often threatened them with being sent to the punishment ward where it was said that they would be placed in straitjackets and tied to beds with thick leather straps and then be subjected to shock treatments and lobotomies. The attendants essentially got away with anything they decided to impose on the boys as they knew the boys would be unlikely to say anything. Who would believe the retarded boys anyway? so they were at the mercy of the attendants and made to be totally docile and obedient. Physical and verbal abuse by the attendants was sadly part of everyday life for the boys, but so too was sexual abuse and even from the female attendants. The male attendants were not allowed to work in the female dormitories, but the females could work in the boys' dormitories, as it was assumed the women, were not sexually dangerous, but this was not the case. It was common for the females to give the boys oral sex and they even showered naked with the boys while perpetrating sexual acts. The older boys also preyed on the younger boys, offering them safety during the day in exchange for sexual favours at night. The school did act as a regular school and teachers were employed to give lessons to the less feeble-minded children although these teachers didn't have the basic credentials. But the time spent learning was far less than the time spent in manual labour, making various things that the institution needed, such as furniture, brooms, brushes, sheets, towels and rugs. There were some who noticed that Freddie was a bright boy and not a moron and noted the quality of his manual work as well as a place to house the so-called feeble-minded, the Fennald School also served as another purpose. It was after the war that America and the Soviet Union became engaged in the Cold War, and it was in the field of science that saw the two countries competing with each other, Millions of dollars was granted for various fields of research, with some going to schools like Fernald, which then proceeded to use its residents in various research studies. So, at Fernald, they studied how heredity played a part in feeble-mindedness and also the endocrine system, which looked at how malformed glands may have also contributed to feeble-mindedness. So they studied the pituitary and thyroid glands, believing they may have disrupted the normal development of the brain. The research was conducted on residents who had died at Fernald with their brains being studied. Another experiment conducted at Fernald was a nutrition study. A letter was sent home to the children's parents explaining the research, which said, quote, The Massachusetts Institute of Technology and this institution are very much interested in the various aspects of nutrition, particularly how the body absorbs various cereals, iron and minerals. We are considering the selection of a group of our brighter patients to receive a special diet rich in the above-mentioned substances for a period of time. They went on to say, that the information gathered would be of considerable benefit to mankind. Just about all parents consented to having their boys involved. And in the cases where children didn't have parents, they were automatically enrolled in the experiment. Freddie and the other boys that took part were told that they were special and that they would receive all sorts of rewards for taking part, such as extra food, parties and trips to watch, Baseball games. They gave them the name the Science Club, saying that only the smart boys were chosen to be part of the club. The boys were put in a particular wing of the dormitory where they were constantly monitored. They were given carefully controlled portions of food and their waste was collected and analyzed. The study involved eating oatmeal and analyzing its effect on the body's absorption of iron and of calcium in milk. The experiment was partly funded by the Quaker Oats Company. The boys also had blood tests taken. They were really made to feel important to be part of the experiment. So Freddie's time at Fernald was filled with physical and sexual abuse. But the emotional abuse was just as damaging. The attendants would regularly call the boys stupid and that they were in the school because no one gave a shit about them. They would also use the word retard, but it wasn't until the children got older that they understood what this meant. And it was then that they began using the word on each other to hurt each other. But as they got older, some of the boys realised that they weren't stupid. They started to be given more and more jobs, which they could see set them apart from the others. Freddy would ask the attendants why he had to be at Fernald as he believed there was nothing wrong with him. But his questions were never answered. So Freddy's frustrations grew and grew. And rather than being called cooperative and good-natured, as he had first been called, the teachers began to see that he became sneaky and defiant. The boys became old enough to be able to compare themselves to others and see that there was nothing wrong with them. They acted out more and more, and many were sent to the punishment ward and put in restraints. This growing awareness about themselves saw them becoming more and more defiant. The older boys, like Freddie, became more and more curious about the outside world. Some boys who came to the school only stayed a short time and left again, which had the boys wondering where they went and why they couldn't leave as well. It was when Freddie was about 12 that he and his friends noticed. The ventilator shafts on the outside of their dormitory building, which ran from the basement to the roof. On each floor of the building, there was an opening in the corner of each room, which was covered with a metal screen, and this is where the air was able to circulate from. One day, the boys unscrewed the metal screen and were able to climb down into the shaft. And so they wouldn't fall, they had to brace their hands and feet against the walls. At first, they were hesitant to go too far, but they got more and more confident and eventually found they could get to the roof and then slide down a pipe to the ground. More and more of the boys became more daring and would crawl through the shafts at night. They dreamed of one day escaping and being free of Fernald. Then one night, Freddie and another boy tried their most daring feat to date. They were actually able to slide down the pipe and made their way across a courtyard to the bakery, where they took some cakes and then returned back to the dormitory, sharing the cakes with the other boys. It was then when Freddie was 13 that he plucked up the courage to try to escape. He was able to sneak outside and then out of the school grounds. However, police officers in a car driving by saw him and picked him up and he was returned to Fernald. But Freddy was not deterred the next time he snuck out of the school grounds during the day and wandered around the streets, but then got back just as it got dark. But he was discovered and sent to the punishment ward. Many other boys took Freddy's lead and tried to escape, but they were caught each time. But this didn't stop others from trying. However, some were totally resigned to believing that they would never leave Fernald and even resorted to taking their lives. Others began damaging school property and even lighting fires. But, thankfully, attitudes began changing and slowly, more and more people began understanding why the children were acting out, as seen by this quote, Patients are told they are here for good. They lose all hope of ever getting out, being discouraged by other patients. They also rarely see any advantage in showing good behavior. While bad behaviour is usually punished, good behaviour is always taken for granted and does not bring any merits. The built-up tensions among the boys finally came to a head when they decided to fight back. They decided to take a stand and protest about how they were treated. The first step in the plan was to start a fire by lighting some mattresses, and when the attendants came to put it out, they were set upon by the boys. They grabbed their keys and were then able to go to the solitary confinement cells where they released some of the boys. They then started smashing windows and destroying anything they could inside the building. They raided file drawers in the office and burned documents in a wastebasket. They also went to the kitchen and gorged themselves with food. The fire department arrived as did the police. The boys used a fire hose inside the building to blast water at the police who approached the building. The siege continued on into the evening despite the authorities yelling at them to give themselves up. But the boys eventually became satisfied that they achieved what they had intended and surrendered. All in all, 15 boys were taken away in police wagons. They assumed they would be taken to the police station. But instead, they arrived at the State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, but it was more like a maximum security prison rather than a psychiatric facility. When the details of the riot became public knowledge, it allowed more and more professionals to recognise that schools, like Fernald, held mostly normal children, who became angry, undereducated and defiant adolescents. They recognised that the siege had been a long time coming. A hearing was held to determine the fate of the boys who participated and eight of them were imprisoned for their part in the siege while the other seven were assigned temporarily to the prison hospital while their cases were reviewed. Freddie had not been involved in the siege. So that brings us to the end of part one of this story And I will release part two in a few days. But before we finish, I'd like you to listen to this audio of some of the boys who went to Fernald now as adults. Freddie is the third voice you will hear. They reflect on their experiences being at Fernald. I never learned to read until I left here. You had a half a day of school. And with the amount of kids that you had to go through the system, you really weren't uh, given the proper time and education. I used to make mattresses up here, be a meat cutter up here, a broom maker. We used to make mattresses for the Met Palo State Hospital up here. The more we did, the more they didn't have to hire anybody. We took care of the ball field, we repaired all the furniture. we repaired the shoes, we had a big cobbler shop over there, uh, nothing made was the towels, out. We made the towels, we had a weaving the shop, rugs. the brooms, we made the mattresses and pillows. We hated summer. You know how people like summer to go to the beach and sailing or whatever they do in the summer, oh, or go out to dream. camp. We are out there pulling weeds in the hot sun from morning till night. And then when we got through with that, they'd take us over to the cannery and we'd have to uh, uh, take the little uh, stems off, uh, string beans. Nobody cared about you. You have to sit in the window and wait for company. It's, it's not very pleasant. The worst time is when you you're looking out that window, you see the mothers come and get their kids, and you're waiting for yours. When you're looking out the window and watching these, like, some of these guys get out before me and watching them go home on weekends oh, and stuff, yeah. and you're just sitting there in an empty I dorm know. with about four or five kids yeah. because there's no one up to come up to take you out. So, bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.